This is an ABC podcast. Morning and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper, and this week on the show, I'm taking you to a community on the river as they watch the floodwaters seep into their towns. It's been a gruelling week for residents of Echuca Moama, and it's not over yet. But first, as always, it's time for rural news and there's no shortage of it this week thanks to some wild weather and the federal budget. Serena Locke, good morning. Yes, good morning, Clint. Let's start with the budget. The item that caught my attention first was that undisclosed amount of money for water buybacks in the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah, there was actually quite a lot in the Labor government's first budget for water policy, and you're right, one of them was an amount of money allocated to purchase water entitlements from willing sellers in the Southern Basin. Now, these entitlements would contribute to the 450 gigalitre parcel of environmental water that South Australia was promised to get that state to sign up to the plan. And New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia were supposed to pitch projects to the federal government that would deliver this water. Think of things like adding infrastructure to a riverbank that would allow a floodplain to be inundated so you could mimic a flood without actually having to get the river height up to flood level. But these projects are dangerously behind schedule and a socioeconomic test placed on them by New South Wales and Victoria in 2018 essentially meant no additional projects were put up. But now it seems the federal government is happy to use buybacks to get that water, setting up an almighty stoush with the irrigator groups and southern basin communities. Now, here's the New South Wales Irrigators Chief Executive, Claire Miller. It was cause for concern, and it's cause for concern because we don't know what the government's intentions are. Now, we understand from media reporting that its intentions is money for buybacks. Now, that's really triggering for basin communities and farmers because it takes them straight back to the bad old days of the um, of 2008 to 2012, where the government just rode roughshod over communities to buy back water. Um, and the uncertainty here is, well, what are their intentions, this undisclosed amount of money? We have had a response uh, in the following day after the budget from the Victorian government. Their position is that no one's agreed to change that socioeconomic test and everyone would actually have to agree to change it. And also that the current basin plan legislation doesn't allow that 450 gigalitre parcel you mentioned, Serena, to actually be recovered using buybacks. You have to use the projects. Now, In the budget, the government says that was an undisclosed amount of money because revealing the sum could impact water markets. And as I just mentioned, there'll need to be some legislative changes to allow the government to re-enter the market for the 450. I'm wondering how the news went down in the Riverina, where infamously the initial draft of the Basin Plan was set on fire. Now, buybacks weren't the only water news from the budget because Labor's also scrapped nearly $6 billion of funding for new dams. 
Yeah, so the budget shows that Labor will scrap Barnaby Joyce's $5.4 billion for Hell's Gate Dam project in North Queensland and defer funding for several other water infrastructure initiatives in what the Federal Treasurer has described as a more responsible approach. Almost $900 million for dams and irrigation projects have been put on hold, such as Dungowan Dam and Pipeline and Wyangla Dam wall-raising projects in New South Wales. And, and in Queensland, Hue and Irrigation Scheme and on the Granite Belt, the Emu Swamp Dam project. And the previous government's National Water Grid Fund got a shake-up too. Yeah, so the National Water Grid was established under the coalition government to research and fund water infrastructure across the country and so far has typically funded pipelines, weirs and feasibility studies for dams. The budget clawed back about $1.2 billion of funding from the grid and the water grid's remit is expanding to include town water projects. Well, that'll be some potentially good news for those towns that were running completely dry of water during the last drought. But let's move on because there's more than water to discuss here. Biosecurity also got a boost in this budget. Yes, and after nearly a whole year on high alert from biosecurity threats, think of lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease, which made it into Indonesia and, and Bali, as well as the varroa mite incursion affecting the bees. And the government announced more funding for livestock traceability, as well as improving protection at our borders and overseas. Now, this is all to the tune of $60 million, and it was money that was brought forward from future years and fast-tracked according to the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. Former government did budget around the same amount uh, in their budget earlier this year, but what's different is that we're bringing that funding forward and fast-tracking it. Uh, the money that the former government had in their budget was to be spent over four years. We're going to get it out the door within two because we just realised that we can't wait given the nature of the threats around there. So we are fast-tracking the existing funding that was there, but also adding to it particularly in the, li in the uh, livestock traceability space. Moving on from the budget, uh, as I said before, I spent the last weekend and week in Echuca covering the floods there, and I'll have interviews with some of the amazing people we met in Echuca a little later on the show. Well, farmers in northern New South Wales are also having a tough time with heavy rains and flooding. Yeah, and the Moree Plains are experiencing a flood different to any they've ever seen before, with the Mihai River uh, it was sitting at 10.45 metres after peaking midweek at 10.69 metres. Over 380 homes and businesses have been inundated with water. That's worse than the flood they had last year. Now, outside of town, graziers have mostly had time to shift livestock to higher ground, but those with crops are seeing them inundated. There's nothing they can do but sit and watch the water rise. Now, here's Moree Plains Shire Council Deputy Mayor Susanna Pearce. So ordinarily, we're very proud that we're the most productive agricultural shire in Australia. So normally we get about a billion dollars worth of produce out of the Moree Plains every year. And uh, this is just absolutely devastating because lots of people would have been gearing up to start on barley and canola and that there's a lot of wheat in around the district and it just will depend on how long those crops have sat underwater, whether they're waterlogged or whether they've actually been completely inundated and we're hearing lots of reports of inundated crops. So while this La Nina-driven wet weather is delaying the harvest of those winter crops, it's also stalling the planting of summer crops as well. 
Yes, I've seen plenty of tweets of farmers getting bogged up to their axles. With seen some very wet weather. rice paddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and summer crops as well. So summer cropping programs in southern New South Wales are in disarray, as ongoing rain and flooding makes these soggy paddocks impassable. Now, Daniloquin agronomist Adam Delwo says growers in the Murray Valley were also stalled due to rain. Our summer crop program is very stop-start. At the minute, we've uh, started cotton this week. We've had a little bit of corn go in and we've had a little bit of a couple of rice crops have gone in too, but we seem to be getting rain weekly and the rain we got last week was anywhere from 75 to 100 mils, so that's anywhere from two to three times our normal monthly rainfall. So paddocks are wet and, yeah, stop-start of the night time. All we hear is frogs and recycle pumps going, trying to get water off paddocks. We watched in Echuca earlier this week as an old levee in the town centre was slowly being engulfed by water from the Murray, basically flowing over that and turning a park in the middle of town into a big pond. You could see yeah. lots of fish and yabbies literally trying to jump back up and get into the river. So it was obviously a sign that that stagnant oh, water pooling there didn't have enough oxygen. Yeah, it needs a lot of sort of pumping and aeration to get oxygen circulating into it. Or the black water event, yeah, just widens. Mm. Mm. Scary. Indeed, and more to come in that rain. Serena Locke, thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News. Nice to talk to you, Clint. Thanks. How easy is it to make a promise? And what happens when you don't deliver? In Earshot's new series, promises are made, broken, kept and stretched. From the intimate... Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. ..to the devastating... For 25 years, I've been terrified of a bad death. From the funny to the highly public. Swedes, did you have any clue what we were signing up for? Absolutely no idea. Catch Earshot's new series, Promise Me, Saturdays at 2 or anytime on the ABC Listen app. This week, from astrophysics and soil science to farming, we'll discover what led a couple to swap their research roles in the city for making cheese from buffalo milk on a rural property. And sticking with the tree change theme, we'll meet a former musical theatre performer who's getting her hands dirty growing flowers on the family dairy farm. We'll also discover why a raspberry grower has recruited unlikely helpers to protect his plants and pastures from bugs. He's letting the family's pet emus loose in the paddock and is finding out they really are a farmer's best friend. Well, we found with the locusts and the grasshoppers and crickets, the black crickets, we get a lot of them here in summer. Those emus are basically like a giant chicken. So they walk across the paddock eating about their body weight a day in grasshoppers and crickets. So a few years ago we had a locust plague come through, so I put three emus into one paddock and I think we might have saved a few other farms because the emus ate all the grasshoppers coming in, the locusts coming through the farm. They just cleaned them up. Putting pet emus to work on the farm, we'll have more on that story coming up. First today, we're venturing to the spectacular coastal cliffs along the Great Australian Bight, where we're catching up with a group of enthusiastic whale watchers. Brooke Nindorf has the story. It's an exciting day for these students from Yalata and a new school on the far west coast of South Australia. They've come to the head of the bite, the northernmost point of the Great Australian Bite, and they're watching on as migrating whales put on quite a display. They keep blasting the water at the little thing. Yeah, they keep blasting the water. Yeah. And they make funny noises. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was nine-year-old Deshaun. He and his schoolmates are taking part in Whale Day, a community gathering to connect with country and the marine park and to marvel at these gentle giants of the sea. G'day, I'm Brooke Nindorf, and I've been exploring the Nullarbor and far west coast region of South Australia. The Nullarbor National Park has areas of strong cultural significance to the Murning, Wurrungu and Yalata Aboriginal people. The whale is the totem and dreaming for the Nullarbor Murning people and Yalata elder Maureen Smart says Whale Day is an important community event in this part of the world. This place is mo most important for all of the far west coast and the people of the far north and western Australia because Dreaming lays across here from the inland out to the sea. And our visitors came here from the start when there was nothing here. And we used the whole highways, all tracks to go and camp with the youth camp along the sand hills up there. Talk about stories there and do dancing, camping with the youth camp. Maureen says she has shared many stories at the Yalata Ananu School, but it's also important to share the stories with visitors as well. I worked for 20 years at school and I teach those people who are now became the father of their own kids and who are working here as a ranger and at school and whatever job they got, I've been teaching them and they know who they are and where they come from. It just belonged to them too. Maureen hopes days like Whale Day show the students they too can work in the area once they finish school. I feel, when I look at the kids, I feel that they are really the kids that are looking forward to be some um, rangers in the future that can be part of this land too, as we share, it, share, share our knowledge with the others and becoming together as one family we can make things better and for people to be happy and that they know that who they are and what's at the year for them to share. Yalata Ananu school principal Terry Casey was overseeing the excitement from the children and says this year's trip was especially exciting. Yeah, so COVID has caused us not to be able to travel a lot. So this is probably one of the major outings that we've had for quite a while at the school. Last year, there was hardly anything. We've done a couple of small trips this year, but we hope to be able to travel around a little bit more in the, the future for the rest of the year. Yeah. So the importance is for the kids to understand what their land entails and what's, what part of their land is. And part of their land is because the ocean, because we're so close to the, the bite. So we bring them down here to see the whales so they can understand what, how the whales continue to come back to this country, which is their country. Mr Casey says the school will tie in the day with learning back in the classroom. It's more about science and understanding the, the whales' cycle, their life cycle. Uh, I think it's important to know why the whales keep coming back here and that the, the same whales are being noticed every year or every two years, I think it is, in here regularly. So uh, I think there's always a bit of excitement of, of coming somewhere like this, but then when they actually see them, lots of times they wouldn't come here to see the whales. They, they might come here for, you know, to, to meet somebody or whatever, but they wouldn't actually come here to go, walk down on the, the landings and have a look at the whales and have a chat to somebody about what the whales are doing or being able to see them so close up. Thank you.
The day also includes whale colouring activities, a barbecue for lunch and face painting. One of those charged with the face painting brush is Tammy Cox, an Indigenous National Park ranger who is based in Sejuna. Yeah, the children actually um, absolutely love the day, I think. Um, we started off with the scientists talking specifically about the whales and identifying them. Then we had a short walk to see the whales at the boardwalk, just spending the time with the kids today and teaching them about whales and coming, you know, they come up and have their babies here and just teaching them about the environment and how to look after it. Miss Cox says it's special to be able to come to the Head of Bite with the children because she also has ties to the area. I used to come up with my family quite a lot um, during the, the weekends and holidays, um, come and see the whales and just um, spend my time camping out here with family. So, yeah, it holds a very special place. What's this here? That's a white baby. Whale Day involves the rangers from national parks as well as researchers from Curtin University's Great Australian Bite Right Whale Study. Bridget O'Shaughnessy has led the researchers this season to count the whales and photograph and document births and behaviour. She says it's great to be able to share her knowledge with the students. Yeah, so obviously it's really important to teach the next generation of marine scientists, really. Like, the kids are the next generation and to ensure that they're understanding the issues that are going on, the, the, the threats that these whales are facing and what they can do to help ensure that this, the head of bite stays a marine park and is protected for many more years to come. And you, I think you've got a few surveys out there with the binoculars and the cameras. Yeah, yeah. Yep, some budding uh, next generation of marine scientists, yeah, taking some photos for us. <laughs> Do you get excited seeing them get excited and seeing other tourists get excited as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, it is. So one of the points uh, where we count the whales is here, at, you know, at the whale centre on the boardwalk. And, you know, we get a lot of people asking us what we're doing, how many whales we're counting. Um, and we can kind of tell them while we're during our count, you know, that they're excited and the kids today, are, yeah, yeah, super excited. And it, it, it's a nice little reminder about why we're doing um, what we're doing, not just for research and not just for scientific journals, but also to bring that information to the general public. Can you hear that strange drum sound? It's actually being made by a Victorian emu. The sound comes from somewhere in its neck or its chest and it reverberates out. It's like a frog horn. It's a very um, deep sound. This emu is very close to me, maybe too close. Am I safe here? Yeah, they won't hurt you at all. Hello, I'm Emily Bisland and I'm in the emu's paddock on a spray-free raspberry farm near Portland on Victoria's southwest coast. The farm is run by Craig and Melissa Woods. They're very, very friendly. And by raising these emus from chicks as really household pets, the Woodses have discovered that the emus have a whole host of other behaviours and talents that actually really help out on the farm. Could it be that emus are actually a farmer's friend? Basically, I started this about eight years ago. I used to work as a fitter and turner. So I couldn't do that job anymore, so I had to make my own job to keep myself occupied. And um, we started the raspberry farm. Um, my wife makes all the jams. Uh, we freeze raspberries to fresh raspberries. Also have black currants, silverberries, marionberries. We introduced a few others to our crop. So, but we also have the emus. When the tourists come in, we do a few farm tours. 
uh, introduce the tourists to the emus. Einstein loves to meet people. He enjoys his cuddles, and uh, people get to sit down and get a selfie with the emu. They get the phone out. They like the phone, don't they? To demonstrate this trick, Craig encourages Einstein to bend his long dinosaur legs down, and he crouches on the ground next to Einstein, who's sitting gracefully now in the grass. What people do is they sit here like this with Einstein. Craig puts his head next to Einstein's head, switches on the selfie camera, and and we get a photo. Takes a shot. That's going straight to Instagram. <laughs> you like your photos, don't you? That looks pretty good, that one. We've also had family portraits. So we've had the whole family sitting around and I end up as a photographer. But why did you decide to buy the emus? Out of curiosity. Yeah, they're just a fascinating bird. Everyone said you can't keep them as pets and I thought, you've got to be able to keep them as pets. So next thing, I came home with a box of eight emu chicks. I had no idea how to raise an emu, so then Einstein become basically the family pet. And my kids grew up with the emus, and uh, then we started the raspberry farm. So the emus become part of the raspberry farm, but Einstein himself started to come up to the gate and sit down for the tourists. We didn't train him to do it, he just loved people. And it's just gone on from there. What are the surprising things that you've learnt about how emus are kind of a farmer's friend? Well, we found with the locusts and the grasshoppers and crickets, the black crickets, we get a lot of them here in summer. Those emus are basically like a giant chicken. So they walk across the paddock eating about their body weight a day in grasshoppers and crickets. So a few years ago, we had a locust plague come through. So I put three emus into one paddock and I think we might have saved a few other farms because the emus ate all the grasshoppers coming in, the locusts coming through the farm. They just cleaned them up. So our paddocks look quite good when everyone else's paddocks were running out of grass. Yeah, the berries survived no problem. So we got a crop at the front and down the back paddock. But they also eat everything else that eats the grass. So we got twice as much grass for our cows. What else are they good at killing? Like what other pests are they good at killing? Oh, they do eat snakes. I have seen Einstein eat snakes a couple of times now, but also foxes. So we haven't lost a chicken since we've had Einstein to a fox. Their toenail on the foot is like a can opener. It could really cause damage if it wants, but the only time the emu will do that if you corner it and it has to get away. But other than that, they're just a very curious animal. But Einstein would pick on goose when he first came here. So goose befriended our mob of cows. So wherever the cows go, goose goes. We didn't realise at first, but yeah, once you raise the emu chick with certain livestock, they'll be part of that mob. Some people have got them to look after the sheep, of course, because the foxes won't go near the flock of sheep once you've got emus. So that's also saved a lot of their lambs. Yeah. That was Craig Woods, who grows raspberries with the help of his pet emus on his farm near Portland in southwest Victoria, where he spoke to reporter Emily Bisland. There's a very cute video of Craig and his emus. You'll find it on the RN homepage. Head online to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Country Breakfast under Programs. You're listening to Country Breakfast on RN this morning. My name's Clint Jasper. Still to come, the lure of farming life. We'll meet a couple of scientists who've pursued their passion for working with animals by breeding buffalo for milk and meat, and the musical theatre performer who's bringing some colour to the family dairy farm. Find some good ones for you with big long stems. I've got paper daisies, so they're the Australian native. 
if you can hear, they sound like paper and not a single flower goes to waste because you tip them upside down, you can dry them and they last forever. So they're really exciting. Um, these ones, this is baby's breath, pink baby's breath. And down the end, this is another Australian native, it's straw flower. It's basically a different variety of the paper daisy. So you can do the same, just tip it upside down and it lasts forever. I love all the different varieties. This one here with the white centre and the orange tips, that's so pretty. Courtney Johnson has carved out a little piece of the family dairy farm here at Bollier in Queensland's Mary Valley and has been busy transforming it into a colourful patch. This was a calf paddock last time you were here, but yeah, we just decided to turn it into a little flower farm. So it's very exciting. Yeah, lots of things have been happening since you've been here last, Jen. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm here visiting Courtney, her husband Wade and their young family, including a new addition, the couple's third child. So I was just pregnant when we last saw you. He's now six months old. Yeah, his name is Valley Oak. Oh, gorgeous. Thank you. For you being a woman on the land, how do you approach life? I think it's pretty hard, especially as a young mum of young children too, being so far away from family and friends and friends with kids. So I think it's been a little isolating for me. But finding something like this that I can now put my heart into and finding kind of my place on the farm, it's been really exciting for me. And just how stunning is it? So what have we got in front of us here? Is this calendula? They are, yeah, calendulas, yep a row filled with gorgeous yellow and orange flowers. And over here? These ones are cornflower or bachelor buttons, you'd know them as. Blues and purples and pinks? Yes, every colour of the rainbow they are. I planted this side when I was very naive. I didn't really know what I was doing. So um, next season, everything will be planted much heavier, like these ones. They're all planted much closer and there'll be much more flowers coming up from each bed. By summer, it'll be more so like a meadow. Got some gorgeous poppies, some mm. snapdragons. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of a mixer bed. This is all a bit of a trial. Uh, but yeah, the zinnias on the other side there, that full bed zinnias. And this next one is um, status. Then the next one is chamomile, and then I've got yarrow. Then after that is snapdragons, and then after that is cosmos. Then on the other side, I've got chrysanthemums and asters for Mother's Day. And then um, I've got about 100 seed trays ready to go for this next little triangle bit. And there's lots more chrysanthemums and asters and carnations and more everlasting daisies. I grow them all from seeds. I've found a, a Australian seed distributor that um, they plant a tree for every order so I buy it from them. Now just on the other side of the fence here you have the most amazing veggie patch <laughs> and last time I came there were a few flowers in the veggie patch yeah. but now the whole idea has really taken off. It has, it has. We used to plant a little bit of flowers in the veggie patch to deter the grubs and stuff but yeah no it's definitely taken off. We love our gardening Wadey and I and it started with veggies and now yeah I don't know I've just found a real love of flowers. So it's, it's really exciting. Courtney Johnson's husband, Wade, is proud of his wife's creative new venture. By value-adding to his small milking herd by growing flowers, they're remaining true to their ethos of keeping their debts low and having more time to spend with their three young children. It was key, real key. Um, like when Poppy Lou was born, yeah, straight away, I just knew what I wanted. I wanted to be around her, I wanted to be a dad, and I wanted to help out my wife, Courtney, um, 
in every way I could. I just wanted to be a parent too. So you're not just feeding your family <laughs> with veggies, you're feeding your soul with the beauty of these flowers and also your bank balance, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. I'm still torn about what to do with it as a business, but I think at the end of the day, if I'm really enjoying it and I'm growing things that I love in our home, then that's okay. I'm thinking about putting a little card out the front. I've got a small business around the corner that wants to sell some. So I think I'll just start really small and then build it up from there but I'm enjoying it and that's the most important thing I think for us. Over here you've got sunflowers. sunflowers yes this whole bed will be a succession of sunflowers. You'll probably get people pulling up wanting to take their photos you'll have to keep the fence between them yeah. and your produce. <laughs> yeah we'll have to keep the fence up for sure. Have you actually sold any flowers yet? <laughs> I've been making little bunches for my friends and stuff but I haven't sold anything yet. I've been busy with another project. What were you up to? Because you've already written a book as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did. That was this time last year the book got published. Yeah, that was Rusty the Tractor Who Never Gives Up, a children's book. But my background is musical theatre. Before I met Wadey, I used to tour as a dancer and, and performer in musicals. So I've been um, music directing the Queensland tour of Legally Blonde. They're on tour now and I'm off the show so I can focus on my flowers. Oh, wow. So you came out of maternity leave as such, <laughs> yeah. your own self-imposed maternity leave, yeah, exactly. to do some work back in the industry again. That must yeah. have been amazing after COVID as well, with oh. people going back to theatres finally. It's amazing that all that stuff has started up again. We got really affected as artists. And how much joy does it give to you when you see your little farm and family thrive? Yeah, it's amazing. We're just so lucky. There are so many families that would just love to have something like this. And for that to be our reality, like, I can't take that for granted any day. I always wake up and pinch myself because we're just so lucky to be able to bring the kids up out here and to be able to be out in the garden, digging in the soil and getting back to nature. Like, that's just so amazing and exciting. And, I, yeah, I really don't want to take that for granted any day. Eleanor and Andre Swagen never planned to milk buffaloes. Eleanor is a qualified soil scientist and Andre an astrophysicist. But despite their impressive resumes, their passion for farming saw them pursue a career in the dairy industry. We always wanted to farm um, and we started moving further and further from Sydney, um, gradually um, deciding what and how we want to do. We were um, milking Jersey cows. We, um, we were also breeding horses. Our daughter was doing um, horse sports. But it was another animal that they would eventually turn to to pursue their farming passion. Hello, I'm Keely Johnson. I'm chatting to Eleanor Swagen here in a shed among buffalo calves on her 40 hectare farm at Bungwall on the New South Wales mid-north coast. About 13 years ago, Eleanor and Andre's daughter, who was studying to be a vet at the time, introduced them to buffaloes after doing placement in the Northern Territory on a buffalo farm. As a, as a young vet, she was seeing a lot of things in the buffaloes that she thought were quite, um, quite beneficial for Australia because they're so, so hardy, mm. very tough animals, very resistant to diseases, still um, quite natural um, in, uh, in the way they are, like really not uh, susceptible to any of the problems that um, dairy cows have. And the milk is amazing, very, uh, very beautiful milk that you make mozzarella with. And mm. we, uh, we had a bit of a background uh, making cheeses at home um, and we always loved mozzarella. So 
we were not um, very hard to convince. The pair bought their first two buffaloes in 2009 and Eleanor quickly got stuck into cheese making. We made cheeses with our Jersey milk and um, as soon as we got our first two buffaloes, we started making fresh cheeses, yogurt, uh, mozzarella from buffalo milk. Um, just by hand, just learning, basically, I went to several uh, cheese making courses, but buffalo milk was pretty much unknown and um, it didn't quite work um, with my buffalo milk that I brought to those cheese courses. So I was watching a lot of videos of mostly old Italian men mm. making mozzarella by hand in their basement, mm. having a cigarette, trying to understand what's going on and how this part of the process is connected to the other part of the process. In 2014, Eleanor was awarded a Churchill Fellowship to pursue a research project on innovation and welfare in the water buffalo dairy industry. The fellowship trip took her to a number of destinations across Europe, including Italy, where she got the opportunity to learn the traditional craft of mozzarella making. Mozzarella is very intuitive. It's mm. not, um, you can't really learn uh, making mozzarella by reading books or even doing the courses. You just have to do it. And, and I, I have become obsessed. They settled on a 40 hectare farm at Bungwall on the New South Wales mid-north coast and now have 80 buffaloes. Eleanor has a cheese-making facility on the farm where she makes a range of cheeses as well as produces milk and meat. The local customers, the area is amazing, the community is amazing, they really appreciated it and, and we were very happy. And, uh, and, um, and the restaurants, like we, we've got a distributor, Feather and Bound, who, who just introduced us to the restaurants. The first one was Fred's, mm -hmm. Daniel Alvarez. She tasted the mozzarella and she, and she started... Uh, putting it on the menu and it had great success and then there was another restaurant and another, another one and that's how it all went. The business won a gold medal in this year's prestigious Delicious Produce Award which is judged by some of Australia's most renowned chefs. This medal is awarded not only for the best quality products but also for innovation and sustainable farm practices. Eleanor says she doesn't use any chemicals in her products or on the farm. And unlike most dairies who remove calves from their mothers a day or so after birth, she maintains the calves on their mothers for six to eight months. The innovative thing we're doing, we do not separate the calves from their mothers. Uh, so we share the milk, basically we lose half the milk, but um, the buffaloes are treated more like partners in this situation. They're very happy. They. They're enjoying their life, they're enjoying coming to the dairy. No one is forced mm. to do anything um, and um, they produce better milk mm. like that because they stress very easily. They have this mechanism in their brain to stop the milk let down if they're not happy, if they're stressing, if they're just a little bit uncomfortable, we would lose the milk. But they happily come here every morning and we have good relationship with them and, um, and, and that is the main uh, component in, um, in the milk and in the product that we make. Elena Swigan, who runs a buffalo farm on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, ending that report by Keely Johnson. Before that, Jennifer Nichols caught up with Courtney Johnson, who's turned a former calving paddock on the family dairy farm into a thriving flower patch. The modern miracles of radio open up vast sources of entertainment and instruction. To benefit from these, we need our ears.
Lend us your ears and experience an endless world of audio content with ABC Listen. Downloading a world of sound. Podcast, music, sport, audio books and the latest live and on-demand news with just one tap. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. For the last four months, a Western Australian company has been feeding livestock with a synthetic anti-methane supplement it's developed. The trials are being done by independent researchers who are saying so far the results look promising. Richard Hudson has the story. It's been pretty well documented that the CSIRO has proven that when a certain compound found in Asparagopsis seaweed is fed to livestock such as these, methane emissions can be drastically reduced sometimes by up to about 95%. So some companies are now madly trying to figure out how to grow, harvest and process asparagopsis. But a Perth-based organisation called Ruminate has taken a slightly different pharmaceutical approach and it's figured out how to make the important bromoform compound found in asparagopsis in the laboratory. So yeah, this is the Rusitec in short. So it's the rumen simulation trial. And so it's a very uh, meticulous system that is able to actually measure every day what is going on. You can take all the Dr. Silke Jacques is the chief technology officer for Ruminate. And she says when this synthetic bromoform product is fed to a few animals in a lab setting, the methane emissions plummet, just as they did in the CSIRO's research using bromoform derived from asparagopsis. But let's get out into the paddock at Murdoch Uni because Ruminate's managing director, David Messina, tells me that's where they've been conducting some more realistic feeding trials. Yeah, so over the last four months, we've been uh, busy uh, with a lot of animal trials. Uh, one here uh, in Western Australia looking at sheep and then one at Murdoch University on cattle and then some trials over east, again, uh, looking at uh, some beef cattle. And what we've been looking to do is replicate the fantastic results that we were getting in our lab trials in an in vitro environment. And um, I'm really happy to say that uh, we're starting to see uh, some real consistency between those excellent results and and what we're now seeing out in the real world uh, and uh, in some cases in the paddock. And so every day when we do the feeding, so we video uh, the feeding behaviour, we have the ability to feed them different formulations of our product, uh, whether that be the powder, the oil or, or the water-based product. And we're seeing um, fantastic demand and, and almost preferential demand for our product now as we've uh, tweaked those formulations uh, to be um, attractive for the cows to be consuming. And then you'll start seeing the laser. So you just click once. Oh. And oh. then you get a lot of data very quickly so you can get that nice average and maximums and you can actually really see it when they start ruminating it immediately goes hmm. peeping and beeping because it's over so that actually did something just then when i did that yes so but you can try it again but try pointing it on the actual nostril so it's a infrared absorption laser so it only measures and reacts to the methane so like other gases it, it won't react to so obviously we we need to reduce methane that's the primary objective uh, of the product and and we're seeing those those results uh, up in the 90s again like like we did in in vitro which is great what we're also seeing is we're actually getting efficiency improvements so better weight gain for every kilo of uh, of feed intake uh, and uh, as we expand the trials to, to more animals uh, over the next six to nine months, we'll actually start to get some really good data about 
what that looks like by feed intake, by species uh, and by environment. So how is it this Bromoform product is actually improving their productivity? What's the, what's the theory behind it? Uh, the product itself doesn't do that. What the product does uh, is it's like an off switch in the production of methane, which is the waste product which is breathed primarily out of the mouth through burping, uh, and, and that product is lost at the moment. But by interrupting the production of the methane, obviously not only are we saving the environment, but that otherwise lost energy is being redirected within the rumen uh, to other microbes which are then turning it into proteins and fats. What's going to be the advantage of this sort of product that's produced synthetically compared to a naturally produced one that's coming from the asparagopsis seaweed? They both work in exactly the same way once you get the product into the rumen. So there's, there's no difference in, in how they uh, work and how, they, how active they are, how safe they are. The approach that we're taking, um, we see it as being much more scalable. Once you work out a, a, a pilot formulation plant, then you can build one of those anywhere. Uh, and as a result of getting that scale, then obviously you have the ability to, to lower the cost. In a controlled setting like we have here at Murdoch University, I can understand how you can be fully in control of how much of the feed they're having and how much of the bromoform they're getting. Let's take it out into the field though. Let's say you're on a massive cattle property in the north of Australia. How do you keep control there? Again, it'll depend by product. So for that particular situation, we're working towards a slow-release bolus, and that is micro-dosing and, and absolute accuracy on, on a daily basis. Um, you know, that could last um, certainly for six months, maybe 12. If we look at our water formulation product, we're actually working with a, an ag tech company who's developed some new technology that actually measures the exact consumption of water uh, from the trough, and then adjusting rates of whatever they're dosing, and in our case it'll be our product, but they've obviously got their own products as well. So at, at least on a, um, a group level, it certainly won't be on an individual level, but, but on, on a, at a feeding level uh, at any point in time on a trough, then we'll be able to manage the average dose rate that'll go out um, in that particular drinking environment at that particular time, live. Overall, how much is methane-free meat gonna be worth, do you think? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the consumer will, will decide that, but um, people are super conscious at the moment, and I think um, those who are able to um, will be willing to, uh, to pay a premium, and, and we'll start to see that flow through to producers. And the one thing the producers want to know, not only how much is the meat going to sell for, but how much is the feed going to cost, do you think? Look, as I said, one of our primary objectives is to deliver product that, that works into... Uh, producers systems we're, we're still working on final costings but we know that if we're much further away than than 10 percent of the value of the cow at turn off then uh, that we're going to meet resistance so that that's an internal target for us there's been a bit of publicity recently with some asparagopsis seaweed being harvested there's some headlines but there's also a bit of clambering for attention and for investment what's your feeling when you when you're seeing some of the press about your competitors Look, I think it's, it's great. The more data we have and, and the more trials that get done, uh, it's still talking about the same active. And, and look, it is, it is a different product. It's a different delivery mechanism. It's organic. Um, obviously, as seaweed, you know, there's always going to be demand for organic products, and I can't see that changing. But look, we've, we've got a massive problem to solve, both at a domestic level and a global level, and we need all the shots we, we can to, um, 
to give agriculture a, a decent shot at, at hitting the 2030 uh, emission targets. Ruminate Managing Director David Messina talking about promising early results from trials where livestock are fed a synthetic anti-methane supplement his company has developed. Despite some long and exhausting days preparing and dealing with floodwaters, communities along the Murray River have shown some incredible displays of resilience, community spirit and generosity. Like two farmers who travelled by boat over an inland sea of floodwaters to help out a mate who needed to shear his sheep. The sheep, which are marooned by kilometres of water near Turumbury, near Echuca in Victoria, were in desperate need of shearing and the farmer was getting worried about the welfare of his animals. A plan was hatched and a group of shearers set sail to help out. Warwick Long spoke to one of them, Luke Barlow from Moama, who explains what happened. We uh, were busy helping a neighbouring farmer um, with his sandbagging around his house earlier in the week and then after that we had to do a bit of evacuating of his sheds and stuff like that and he said, he mentioned he had a mob of sheep that were basically on an island out in the middle of the Paracuta Kundruk Forest and he was concerned about uh, the fire strike and maggots getting into them as uh, like he, there was no possible way to get them out um, and yeah, they could have been sort of marooned on that island for up to the next two months, so likely that they would perish. So, um, yeah, he came up with a plan to airlift some uh, portable sheep yards in there and get a couple of local boys together in a couple of boats and, and go in there and just crutch them and treat them for any any future fly strike and, and put his uh, mind at a bit of peace. So this is incredible, Luke. So, so the yards were airlifted into this marooned island and you and and other local farmers went in by boat is that right yeah that's correct warwick it was um it was probably a four and a half kilometer journey in through the forests which you can normally drive in no problem at all but we were parked pretty much where the bitumen stopped and and yeah pushed the boat for some time till the water was deep enough to drop the motor in and then then carried on motoring in there it, in a dinghy. We're talking a little tinny here. Yes, little 12-foot uh, flat-bottom punt so that, um, you know, it was nice in the shallow water and, yeah, that was just easy access, only easy access that we could work out our way of getting in there. So with all the shearing gear, the, the four of you venture in there, what did you find once you got to where the sheep were? Oh, well, <laughs> we did, we weren't really sure because the farmer hadn't, um, been in there sort of four or five days. He said there's every possibility they could be, like everything they dropped in there could be underwater and we'd have to move it up on top of a higher bank or something. So we weren't sure how long we were going to be in there, what we were in for. It was a bit of a um, discovery mission. But uh, luckily when we got through all these flooded paddocks and pretty much boating over the top of fences to get there, that's how deep the water was. Um, yeah, we found the sheep was still dry and everything that was dropped there was there so it was just a matter of getting uh, into action and setting up the yards and getting the sheep in and, and getting stuck into it. And what was it like once you got stuck into it? Did you get the job done? Yeah, yeah, it was all it was all good. Um, we didn't take any dogs in there because we feared there might be a lot of snakes obviously if it's the only dry bit of ground for many kilometres but um, so yeah we managed to get them in with it. They dropped a quad bike in there as well with the yards and um, we just got started when a thunderstorm came through and just absolutely saturated 
everything, but we were prepared for that with our wet weather gear. But you know, the, obviously the sheep were saturated and uh, the yards were just a, a slippery mud mess. But um, yeah, so it wasn't certainly wasn't great um, um, sort of situation to be in. But there was only one way to get out, and that was just get into it and get the job done. And is it a huge relief to to the farmer involved to at least know that job? has been done and the and the welfare of those sheep is is going to be a lot better off because you did it uh most definitely warwick it was uh it was quite evident the relief just when we turned up that morning you know it was just like he put so much thought and effort into getting this um operation underway um and to get some support from us local boys to to get the job done and when we were finished to sit back you could just see the look on his face it was like okay well now now I can go back and concentrate on saving the house and, and the other stock that are around the house and make sure they're right. Luke Barlow from near Moama on the New South Wales Victoria border speaking to Warwick Long. It's been an exhausting fortnight for residents of towns like Echuca, Moama, Barma, Rochester, Kerrang and many others who spent days sandbagging their properties and waiting for the river to peak. Throughout all of it, Cathy Costaglou and her family ensured their pharmacy stayed open, despite some huge struggles with sourcing people's medications and the logistics involved in delivering them to those cut off by floodwaters. And when Cathy wasn't working, she was busy helping out in any other way that she could. What I'm hearing from the customers, I've lost my house, I'm cleaning up. So I thought, well, the first thing I've got to do is actually feed our frontline staff, their essential workers, and just get everybody not to worry about food because food's scarce at the minute here and we're obviously not got a lot of things open. And so the staff that are working, so the first thing I do every day is feed our staff lunch and make sure they all have a coffee or drink, whatever they want to wish for, and then looking at cooking food for people that uh, might be cleaning homes up. I'm already thinking, how are we going to help Rochester? How are we going to help people in Echuca? Because fundraising's my real true background of raising money and being able to help people that really need it. And yeah, like it's, you can't sleep at night. You just, you're just thinking 24 seven, you're running on adrenaline for sure. But I feel, I can't even complain at all. We have the best, best community. I'm so honoured to live here. Cathy, how many, how many people do you think have you helped and how many meals have you made so far? Oh, I'm not counting. And um, because there's people doing a bigger job with meals than me. Um, friends, you know, like Johnny and Lyles, Nourish, Opa, like uh, people. I got a sandwich by someone, I don't know who that was from, and a piece of fruit when I was in line, but from someone else. And uh, the entire town of what they're being able to give and feed and do, we're just doing all something here. And what I'm loving is that everybody's doing one thing. If you're not lifting a bag, you're feeding someone, you're making a sandwich, you're checking in on someone, you're helping someone's house. You know, like it's just, it's inspiring to be honest. And like, and I'm getting phone calls constantly, how can we help? And I say, well, we haven't come to the end of it yet to be able to help. But trust me when I tell you, everybody will want to get on board to help. So I just definitely um, doing whatever we can. 
Ichuka's Kathy Costaglu speaking with Iskander Razik. To prepare for the flood, a three-kilometre levee was constructed, part of which went right down the middle of a road in Ichuka. It meant houses on one side stayed dry, while homes across the road were inundated with stormwater that had nowhere to flow. Jemima and James were on the wrong side of the levee, but that didn't stop them putting on a party just before the floodwaters arrived. Well, we have got a lot of sandbags, some tarp, extra sand. We've got a pump here in the front and in the back because water is obviously coming down through that unprotected street there. So it's coming up into the backyard and then flowing through down the front as well. So that's pretty much it. We've put everything up. We've got the valuables out and, yeah. Mm. Well, tell me about the... The DJ last night. <laughs> Whose idea was That was his idea. <laughs> She's the DJ. I was just like, I'll just sort of, yeah, the tag along, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, we just sort of... Well, it was the first thing to go in the truck, trust me, because I was like, come hell or high water, my music stuff is not getting wet. I, Professional, yeah, like I do play gigs. Mm. So it was the first thing to go in the truck, and then as the waiting game kept going on and on with all this spare times, we, we run a business, so we're normally so busy. I was like... Oh, now I've got time to do it, you know, like, so we pulled them out and then James was like, stuff it, let's set them up here and put the tunes on the community and then we put a post in the community group and then oh, people just coming out from everywhere, mm. standing up there, taking videos, even if they didn't come in to the swamp. Yeah, it wasn't really the best dance floor no. <laughs> we could offer, but... um. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, it was it. Yeah. so much fun. And, like, it was fun for us because you just forget about the, the, the chaos going on around you. For, for a couple of hours. Jemima and James from Echuca. Iskander Ruzik was asking the questions and I was behind the camera. Our thanks to everyone who took the time to speak with us. The mood is souring in Echuca, with those on the wrong side of the levee growing increasingly frustrated at the near-daily pumping of stormwater into their yards and properties. In addition to the property damage and the clean-up, there are now concerns about health. I can report the mozzies there are absolutely feral and there are cases of gastro and skin infections in the town. Here's the Riverine Herald's Branson Gibson talking to ABC Melbourne on Thursday. Well, we're definitely still at that, that watch and wait status. It's actually creeping up ever so slightly. We saw on Tuesday it was 94, uh, sorry, the level was at 94.93 metres AHD. This morning it was actually at 94.97. So it's actually gone up four centimetres, right. which is, you know, still a relatively small amount given some of the uh, the early predictions. But we are seeing that the water is still certainly staying here and that's making a lot of people nervous in particularly as you said with all that rain because with the water stagnant and you know with the levee being built uh, that rainfall impacts the people who are already inundated and then with fears for excess stormwater that's actually being pumped over the levee again into some of those uh, around some of those properties that are, have already been inundated too so the rain definitely still poses a threat even if it doesn't directly rise the river uh, sorry rise the river level but just we're trying to uh, pump it out of the the stormwater drains Branson Gibson from the Riverine Herald and the rain just keeps on falling so there'll be plenty more work to do from here for all of those communities along the Murray River and more widely who are experiencing ongoing flooding. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McElin, Carrie Dell and Angie Grant for helping bring Country Breakfast together this week. Stick around for more excellent radio coming right up here on RN.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.